Today at Reader's Corner, Peter Robison, author of Flying Blind, The 737 Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. I'm Bob Kustra. Welcome to Reader's Corner in the first of two interviews with author and investigative reporter Peter Robison about his book, Flying Blind, The 737 Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. We will continue with the second half of our conversation next week. In his book, Peter Robison offers a definitive expose of how a broken corporate culture of malfeasance and greed led to two fateful crashes of the Boeing 737 MAX in 2018 and 19 and the deaths of 346 passengers and crew. He is an investigative journalist for Bloomberg and Bloomberg Businessweek, also the recipient of the Gerald Loeb Award the Malcolm Forbes Award, and four Best in Business Awards from the Society for Advancing Business Editing and Writing. Peter Robison, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thanks so much for having me. Peter, let's begin with your describing for us the Boeing of yesteryear as a distinct contrast, perhaps, to the Boeing that is responsible for these two crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia. Yeah, I, I spent um, a lot of time in the book um, going into the, the history of Boeing because it, it really is um, a, a dramatic and uh, far-reaching history. But Boeing is really the company that created the jet age. It, it's uh, first uh, jet passenger airplane, the 707, uh, made routine jet travel possible. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time in the book also talking about the, the characters and, and the people who made it that way. And, and one of them is um, an engineer named Joe Sutter, who um, is considered the, the father of the 747, uh, which, which was an airplane that helped make transatlantic travel possible for the masses. And he's also someone who um, had great integrity. He, he early in his career uh, in the late 50s, uh, because no jet transports had ever been built before, Joe Sutter and, and other engineers uh, with him actually wrote the, the federal regulations uh, dictating how commercial aircraft, commercial jet aircraft should be built. Uh, and, and it was, you know, laborious regulations with, with all the, the double checking and, and the, the meticulous, uh, just the, the requirement that, um, that there should be no single point failures on an aircraft was, was really due to their um, their assessment of um, what was necessary in a commercial aircraft. What about the culture of Boeing? How did that change over the years from those early years of Joe Sutter to the later years, uh, which we'll talk about the acquisitions in a minute, but apparently that culture changed due to some very impactful acquisitions. Uh, Again, let's not talk about who uh, was acquired, but more importantly, how did that change the culture? Well, I, I started uh, covering uh, Boeing in the late 90s, uh, which was um, a, a really a hinge moment in its history because Boeing at that point still had 60% of the aircraft market. Airbus was considered uh, a, a sort of state-supported job program in, in Europe, and, and there was this thought that Boeing would always have have this share of the market really as its, as its birthright. It, it had airplanes. Uh, it, it had developed the 707, the 727, the 737, uh, the 47, the 57, the 67, and the 777 at that time in 1995 had had just 
been developed and it was it was really the 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 peak of of Boeing's it's one person I talked to described it as as Boeing's Camelot it it was a moment when uh all of the facets of the company were working together and the the strong safety culture was emphasized by uh Alan Mulally who who later went on to run Ford but at the time was in charge of the 777 and uh, the triple seven was developed with the motto "working together," and and this was the idea that customers, suppliers, regulators, everyone had to be brought into this program with lots of communication. However, that changed in the late '90s because what was happening w- was that Boeing was getting increasing pressure from Airbus, and at the same time, there was also increasing pressure from Wall Street to increase its returns. Uh, General Electric, which was then run by Jack Welch, was was doing in, incredible numbers, increasing its profits 50% a year, increasing its dividends, sending more cash back to shareholders. And so Boeing, which was led at the time by uh, Phil Condit, uh, was was feeling that pressure. And, and it was a moment when the company had to decide uh, if it was going to invest in product, which in some ways would make Wall Street unhappy, or, or if it would pursue the same strategy that other American companies were then pursuing. Well, let's talk about one of those American companies, and that's McDonnell Douglas. Uh, tell us about the McDonnell Douglas culture that Boeing was soon to meet up with after the acquisition by Boeing, and that was about 1998, I guess. And I think Jack Welsh plays an indirect role in this because it's some of his uh, mentees, I guess you could say, that uh, seem to be part of the problem here. Yeah, in the, in the book, um, Jack, Jack Welch is, is really a, a figure who looms over everything because he was, in that period in the late 90s, he was the, the model for what a, a CEO should be and, and should look like. And and that meant, you know, as I said, it, it, it meant returning a lot of cash to shareholders. It, it meant uh, it meant in a lot of ways sacrificing the future for the present. And um, the person who ran McDonnell Douglas at that time uh, was a uh, fellow named Harry Stonecipher, who had worked for Jack Welch for, for many years. And Stonecipher uh, really, really believed in that style. He, he was somebody who, when he first took over McDonnell Douglas, immediately returned a lot of cash to, to shareholders. And um, when the two merged, so so, so Boeing, uh, Phil, so Phil Condit acquired McDonnell Douglas, and McDonnell Douglas had always been the well for the last for the twenty years preceding the, the acquisition in in ninety seven. McDonnell Douglas had been the also ran. There was there was actually a book that was written by um, a, a management theorist named Jim Collins called Built to Last, and he uh, named Boeing as as sort of the the the, the model of of what a company should be that it should think about the future it should think about customers and and employees and you know along the way if, if shareholders benefit uh that that is is a good thing but he he described mcdonald douglas in in the book as as sort of the the also ran reference case of a company that didn't make uh far-reaching uh thoughtful ac- acquisitions and investments so what happened when the when the two met, Phil Condit from Boeing and Harry Stonecipher from McDonnell Douglas, was that Stonecipher uh, and I and I saw this happen. I was the beat reporter at the time, but for Bloomberg and and Stonecipher was actually the more powerful, authoritative figure, and and his approach of rewarding shareholders first won out. I think I I think I remember a reference you said where where McDonnell Douglas was the hunter killer assassin and uh, 
<laughs> Boeing were, were the Boy Scouts. And I guess yeah. that just has, yeah, that's that's yeah. that that was a, a a great way of summing it up. That actually came yeah. from a, a federal mediator who who mediated a strike that 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 really summed up the tensions at the time. The the, the Boeing engineers um, could see what was coming. They were sensing less support for for research. They were seeing more pressure on costs throughout the organization, and so they went on a strike in the year. 2000, which I covered, um, and it was the the largest white collar strike by engineers um, ever in, in, in U.S. history at that time. And the the unusual thing about it was that it wasn't about uh, pay or benefits to a large extent. There, there was a small gap. They, they were really trying to run. They were trying to change the way Boeing was running the company. They, they described it as a referendum on management. And and during at one point in those uh, in the conversations to settle the strike, a, a federal mediator um, said to one of the engineers I, I talked to that you know he he considered this merger doomed, and and the reason was that uh, Boeing were Boy Scouts and the people who came from McDonnell Douglas were hunter killer assassins. You're listening to Peter Robinson. He's the author of Flying Blind: The 737 Max Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. You mentioned Harry Stonecipher. Uh, it brings to mind a section in your book where you talk about shareholder value and where Harry is big on stock buybacks. Uh, I wonder if you could explain to our listeners who might not understand just what those are, what they are, and more importantly, how they may have affected research and development at Boeing, the kinds of investments companies have to make in order to look to the future. Yeah, uh, thanks for asking that. So, so stock buybacks sound arcane, and they and they sound um, as, as if they're 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 something <laughs> distinct from the amount of cash that a, a company has. But they come they come out of the the, the, the cash that a company collects, and um, what a company will do is um, either create a new class of shares and purchase them and cancel them, or buy back shares on the open market. And when they do that. They're um, making their share price go up, essentially, because um, you end up holding a larger stake in the company. So you get a larger share of the dividends because there are fewer shares outstanding, and that benefits the existing shareholders. And it also benefits the executives themselves because they're compensated to a large extent in stock. And uh, it used to be before 82 that there were limits on the amount of stock a company could buy back. Um, but in that year, and the SEC, which was then led by a former um, EF Hutton executive, uh, created a new rule that that lifted the, the safeguards on the the amount of um, stock a company could buy back. So from that point, as I as I chart in the book, there's a professor named William Lazowski from UMass who who's charted this over the years. And at that time, in the early 80s, companies were spending about four percent of their uh, profits on buying back shares. It's, it's gone up uh, in recent years to as much as 50%. And when they do that, they're taking money from R&D, they're taking money from uh, paying employees. So, it, so it's a real shift in the priorities from investment in employees and products to rewarding shareholders right now. There was also a change in executive compensation guidelines, was there not? In, at the SEC or, or at, at Boeing? At Boeing, there, I thought yeah, Stone at, Cipher at, had something to do with that. Yeah, at at, at Boeing, um, that there had been a number of the um, the guidelines for executive pay were were tied to uh, safety. They were tied to measures uh, like customer support. Over time, uh, 
it became uh, tied to measures that essentially rewarded uh, efficiency and profitability and the, the the measures related to safety were gradually re- reduced in, in those executive compensation guidelines. Right. So the flip side of this argument that um, it was bad for Boeing to dismiss this environment that was focused on safety, this collegial environment, which encouraged people to work together. Uh, the flip side of that is what one 30-year veteran said. You quoted him. He called, He said it's a collegial, bloated, flaccid management structure. What's your reaction to that from your years covering Boeing? Well, that's, yeah, yeah, that that's... Um there, there is an element that Boeing was in need of, of some efficiency. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I've, I've heard from employees who, you know, it was called the lazy bee because the idea being <laughs> that, that there were a lot of people who weren't, you know, doing anything at, at Boeing. I think it's, it's, uh, it, it's symptomatic of um, its market share that, that at the time it, it, it did have more than 60% of the market and there was an element of complacency. So, I think that person you quote is is pointing out how this merger with McDonnell Douglas came at precisely the right time because they were able to exploit that sense that Boeing had been complacent. You know, however, I would argue that other decisions could have been made, and especially the decision to continue focusing on developing product. That that was ultimately where where Boeing has gone wrong because Airbus has continued developing newer newer products and um Boeing time and again as I chart in the book missed opportunities to update the 737 it could just never quite bring itself to develop an all new plane which which is really hurting it in the marketplace now so flight training for pilots flying a new Boeing aircraft uh, obviously there's a critical safety component to that anytime Boeing sells an aircraft how was simulator training and the electronic checklist uh, was affected? How were those affected by the so-called focus on the bottom line? Yeah, so, so a, a new aircraft, it, 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 it's not like handing over a, a product and then saying, "Go look at, you know, go look at the, um, the you know, the directions online or, or watch a video." You know, the idea with commercial aircraft has always been that you know, crews will need a lot of assistance and help um, once the aircraft is, is handed over. And er- early in Boeing's history, um, people that I talked to told me that, that Boeing would have, uh, for a, a long period after the airplane was first delivered, they would have crews, you know, meeting the plane at, at each gate and would really, you know, pay attention uh, at a granular level to what was going on with each airplane. Uh, as fleets have gotten larger and larger, it's it's been more difficult to do that. And Boeing, in particular, uh, made a change to uh, turn its its pilot training division from a customer support function, so a cost of its own, to become a profit center. And the idea being that Boeing could uh, sell its its uh, training in the marketplace the way other airlines had done. Um, but but many of the pilots that I talked to said that that created a lot of um, a lot of conflicting priorities and and so instead of uh, focusing uh, in, in a very single-minded way on on the on the training that an airline gets immediately after delivery it became over time a, the, the idea is that if you minimize that training that an airline 
gets that that helps you, your bottom line and and Boeing would increasingly ask airlines to pay for additional training um, w- which would um, increase the profit of this division so with this focus on the on the bottom line it, it certainly didn't seem to affect the focus on brass the brass of the company and and how they functioned both the kinds of aircraft they used to get around and CEO salaries. Yeah, I mean the the I, I um, charted in the in the book that the the change in really the the the, the ethos and mentality of the leadership of the company um, in the seventies and eighties. Uh, Boeing had a small um, business aircraft that it flew its executives in. It, it the most of the top executives were encouraged to fly commercial, which would support the customers. Um, but, you know, uh, at this point, you know, Phil Conte, who I've mentioned when he became CEO of Boeing, uh, created a new version of the 737, uh, the, the Boeing business jet. And he and Jack Welch happened to take two of the first off the line. And uh, Conde flew around in this much larger business aircraft, which uh, was, was, was really symbolic of the way corporate leadership was taking a larger share of a company's profits, uh, you know, really reserving more of the the fruits of the company's labor for themselves. This plane had uh, a shower of its own. It it had flat screen televisions. um, And and then as I also talk about when Boeing moved the headquarters to Chicago, um, it, it was um, done up like a colonial gentleman's estate with, with glass scepters and, and English Regency gilt mirrors uh, th- throughout the headquarters. <laughs> yeah, for those of us listening who have been on plenty of 737s, uh, that's, that's not any description I can relate to. Uh, you're listening to Peter Robison. He's the author of Flying Blind, the 737 Max Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. Peter, there was another organization undergoing some changes in the years leading up to the 737 MAX disasters, and that's the regulatory agency responsible for, for policing the work of uh, making our our passenger aircraft safe, uh, the Federal Aviation Administration. Tell us what was happening there and the obvious connection to safety. Yeah, I mean, as I said, in, in the late 50s, um, Joe, Joe Sutter and the engineers at Boeing had really created these federal aviation regulations um, related to jet transport, but there was also um, a, a great respect for the regulators and and um, a recognition of the idea that it needed to be an independent check. Um, and the FAA, uh, b- because developing an aircraft is a commercial aircraft is so complex, it it relies on employees of Boeing to um, make sure that those regulations are being followed. And that was really with this. Uh, almost independent workforce within Boeing who are called uh, deputies or or designated engineering representatives. And those are the people who make sure that the aviation regulations are being followed. And and for many decades, really, those people had a, a, they had a manager at Boeing, but they also had a dotted line relationship to the FAA. And, And it was the FAA that made those appointments and and decided who would be the deputies at Boeing, which which would prevent Boeing from putting junior employees in that roles or or people who are too close to management. Um, but but over time, and 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 really this was something that was dictated by Congress to to save money in, in the name of government efficiency, um, 
that that responsibility was shifted over to to Boeing and to the other manufacturers. There was something called the organization designation authorization was put in, and the idea was that uh, Boeing itself could choose these deputies. The the FAA would have sort of a, a overall risk responsibility, but the relationships uh, really changed according to the people that I talked to, and it, and it was because the the primary relationship became between managers at Boeing and managers at the FAA who felt that it was best to work together to speed the the the, the designs to to production and and so the specialists really felt ignored in this new relationship and and that was again partly by design that the organization that uh supervises Boeing uh was called the the BASU the Boeing Aviation Safety Oversight Office and there were only 50 FAA engineers in that office, uh, but more than a thousand from Boeing. So in that environment, uh, the, the FAA specialists really had no chance to, to supervise what was happening at Boeing. Mm-hmm. Didn't I read that the, the CEOs at Boeing or somebody at Boeing actually at one point had control or had input into the salaries of the FAA people who were doing these checks on Safety and whatever. That was yeah. At, at um, I talked to um, several FAA engineers who said that they felt that uh, and that their in one case that their manager said that part of their bonus you know relied on Boeing meeting its schedules. And w- while this wasn't explicitly written down, there there were uh, that that I could find there there was definitely that sense um, among the specialists that their managers. Uh, felt that and were communicating that and and that that was seen in uh, some of the um, overall targets that these managers were hearing and and that included safety but it also included um, things like supporting the customer and and there wasn't at least one case where um, a a manager had a a, at the FAA had a target that that was to uh, meet meet to, to, to bring a, a GE engine into service um, by 2007. And, and, and it, it is telling that uh, when the um, Congress passed a bipartisan aviation reform bill, they explicitly banned um, any compensation at the FAA based on meeting manufacturer schedules. Tell us about the move of Boeing to Chicago. I mean, here's a company that is so deeply ingrained in the culture and the history of Seattle. And they pick up and move to Chicago. They move to a very expensive uh, real estate piece in downtown Chicago on the upper floors of the, I think it was the Morton Thiokol building. Um, tell us about why they did that and what what role that plays in this story of yours. Yeah, I, I, ironically, it was the Morton Thiokol building. It, it wasn't really noted at the time. It, it was uh, people thought of it as the Morton Salt building, but but when it originally opened, it, it was the, the Morton Thiokol building. And of course, the Morton Thiokol is famous as the developer of the O-rings that failed on the Challenger. Um, but yeah, the, yeah, the, the move to 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 Chicago um, happened in the year after the the strike that I mentioned by engineers. And um, again, as I write in the book, it it, it stems um, in part from Phil Condit's insecurities, his 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 desire to to please Wall Street and to uh, show that Boeing was implementing a strategy that 
was was like you know like General Electric was like these other uh, large shareholder focused American companies and G at the time had its headquarters in Fairfield, Connecticut, and it was separate from the other divisions. Uh, the the idea being that uh, GE would be the that the the headquarters would be the impassive uh, voice in the center that could make decisions among these various operating units. But uh, how it was felt and 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 among the employees was that it was payback for the strike the previous year. And that Boeing was sending a message that it was no longer all about commercial airplanes, uh, and um, that that is how it's played out. But Boeing has prioritized other businesses. Um, as, as I said, it's it's lessened investments in commercial aerospace uh, over time, and it's you know, and as, as I said, the, the headquarters um, is, is this, you know, it, it, it's interesting that the, the, the CEO who followed uh, Phil Condit, Jim McNerney felt the need to tone down that the headquarters um, and, and the, <laughs> the, the furnishings at, at that office, because it was seen even by him as a, as a bit much. How does outsourcing play into Boeing's downfall here? But Boeing, Boeing has, has felt that the need um, to, to, keep its own costs low. So, so it has handed over a larger share of its work to outside suppliers that, that always happens uh, in commercial aerospace. So it's not unusual in some ways, but what was unusual, particularly with the 787, um, which, which was an investment that, that Boeing made in the future. Um, but it was, as I describe in the book, it was, it was it was simply a botched business case because Boeing not only handed over specific work, it also handed over the design t- to these suppliers. Um, and this was a playbook that came straight from McDonnell Douglas, uh, which had gradually lost uh, its leadership of commercial aerospace and and was was sort of losing the the expertise that it needed in particular parts of the aircraft. Uh, and and it 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 became a disaster. But Boeing um, didn't have insight into how these parts were designed. Uh, it had repeated communication problems. There, at, at one point, um, the I talked to an engineer who who said that uh, they had to go back to a design team in Russia to to remind them that the smoke detectors had to be connected to the to the <laughs> had to actually be connected to power eighteen times. Um, uh-huh. So. So it it the the intention was to save money and ended up costing Boeing money over time and and Boeing had to spend fifty billion dollars to um, bring into service the seven eighty seven which would be a critical delay because it was that experience that partly contributed to its uh, lack of interest in developing an all new seven thirty seven and and that's uh, one of the reasons why it went down this path of of doing a uh, what it thought would be a simpler update of the 737 in, in the MAX. Well, Peter, that wraps up our conversation for this week. Of course, we've been talking about your book, Flying Blind, the 737 MAX Tragedy in the Fall of Boeing. We'll pick this up next week with our conversation, delving further into the cause of the two 737 MAX crashes and discussing whether there was any accountability leveled at Boeing and its executives. So, Peter, thanks for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones. I'm Bob Kustra. 
Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. 